Please remain standing as we read God's Word. Together we will be looking in Psalm 29. You can find it in your pew Bible on page 461. Psalm 29. The Psalm of David. Ascribe to the Lord, O heavenly beings. Ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. Ascribe to the Lord the glory due his name. Worship the Lord in the splendor of holiness. The voice of the Lord is over the waters. The God of glory thunders. The Lord over many waters. The voice of the Lord is powerful. The voice of the Lord is full of majesty. The voice of the Lord breaks the cedars. The Lord breaks the cedars of Lebanon. He makes Lebanon to skip like a calf and Syrian like a young wild ox. The voice of the Lord flashes forth flames of fire. The voice of the Lord shakes the wilderness. The Lord shakes the wilderness of Kadesh. The voice of the Lord makes the deer give birth and strips the forest bare. And in his temple, all cry, glory. The Lord sits enthroned over the flood. The Lord sits enthroned as king forever. May the Lord give strength to his people. May the Lord bless his people with peace. Let's pray together. Our God, as we come before your word of truth, and as we have heard it said over and over, the voice of the Lord, that is our prayer, that we might hear you. So speak, O Lord, for your servants are listening. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Perhaps you've heard of a man. He has uh, gone home to be with the Lord. He is from California. Uh, was a pastor, a passionate preacher. His, well, how he's normally known is S.M. Lockridge. Or, in fact, if you asked him what those letters stood for, he would tell you the truth, and you would question whether or not he was telling you the truth, but the S and the M stood for, well, Shadrach, Shadrach, Meshach, and they stopped there. I don't know, Abednego didn't make it, but uh, Shadrach and Meshach is the S and the M, Lockridge. If you've heard of him, there's perhaps a sermon or a portion of a sermon that you've heard from him. In his sermon, he's actually talking through uh, the Lord's Prayer. And he is talking about how are you and I trained to write a letter? And he's talking about the different components of a letter. And he, at the same time, he's talking about his experience in which he meets the president. And he finishes by saying, how would you close that letter? How would you describe the kingdom? He says, if you have a kingdom, that means you have a king. And so he says, well, who is your king? And he says, if you ask that question, wait until they ask you, who is your king? And if you've heard the video, I would commend it to you. He begins to describe his king, and he will say things such like, my king was the only king. He's always been the king. He will always be the king. He is enduringly strong, entirely sincere, eternally steadfast, immortally graceful, impartially 
merciful, sinners, a sinner's savior, the centerpiece of civilization. He is unparalleled. He is unprecedented. And that list goes on and on and on. If you've ever heard it, it only encourages your soul. And I'm reading his quote. He's not using notes. He's telling you, this is my king. It's, a, it's an undistracted praise of God. And that's something of what we get here tonight in Psalm 29. What S.M. Lockridge does is quite the challenge for us, is it not? Because he's not telling you what you should do. He's not telling you what you should ask for. He is just spending moment after moment after moment telling you who his king is. He is adoring God for who God is and what he is like. That's a little bit of a taste of what we get here in Psalm 29. David is, well, he's giving us a song, a, a, a poem, a hymn of pure praise. You're wondering what's going on in his life. How is he looking at it? And he wants you to see there's no distraction in his mind. All I see is the Lord. And I want us to look at it. When he, when he pins this and he sings it, how does he praise God? I want to look at it in three ways. How, or to use S.M. Lockridge, who is your king? What is he like? Do you know him? The king of glory would be the title of the sermon, but, but what are we to understand of this king of glory? The first is the fact that he is the king of glory. Secondly, what does the king say? The king who speaks. And then lastly, the king who saves. So if you've got your Bible, let's look together in verses one and two. The king of glory. And David begins and he says, ascribe to the Lord, O heavenly beings. Ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. Ascribe to the Lord. What is he saying? Ascribe, ascribe, ascribe. Assign something to him. Attribute something. Accredit God. And what is it that we are to accredit him with? Well, David says glory and strength. But what is he acknowledging about his king? Well, it's simple that God is the possessor. He is the owner, you might say, of glory. He's the owner of strength. The strength meaning it is the unhindered ability to do whatever he wants, however he wants, whenever he wants. That there is nothing, no person, no one thing that can stop him, that can change what he wants to do. It belongs entirely to God, 100%. When David says, ascribe to the Lord glory and strength, he's not looking at Danny and he's saying, Danny, you've got a good solid 5% in there. He's saying, God is the owner of all of it. He is 100% exclusive glory and strength is his. That is his king of glory. You can imagine then, David, what's going on in your life? What is prompting such a powerful statement and a description of God. He is well, he's worshiping. He's calling other people into worship, doesn't he? Isn't it interesting that he says, ascribe to the Lord, not Danny, not Smyrna Presbyterian Church, not church at all. He says, ascribe to the Lord, O heavenly beings. 
he begins with a, a call on the angels, the heavenly hosts, ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. He is summoning the angels, the angelic beings, to praise and to worship this king of glory. What a powerful image. What a strange image. Wouldn't you say, why would you call upon the angels? Isn't that what they do? Isn't that their job description? That they sit and all they do is praise? Well, if we're reading this literally, then, then yes, David, you might have missed something. But I think he's writing it poetically and he's saying, I understand who my king of glory is. I'm inadequate in my worship. The only thing that will add to it is not just more people, but we need all of creation in heaven and on earth to then therefore praise the Lord. What a king of glory that David isn't sufficient in his own praise, that David in a nation isn't sufficient in praise, that we need even the heavenly hosts to then offer praise unto the Lord. It's a grand description of who God is. But why is his worship so inadequate? Why does he feel this sense that says, I need more? I need others. I think it's because of how he describes God. He calls him glorious. He uses the word glorious. Who is the king of glory? What do we mean when we say the word glory? It shows up all over the scriptures. You get it in the Old Testament and you get it in the New Testament. In the Old Testament, it's the, it's the Hebrew word kavod. And in the Greek, it's doxa. And do you understand what the word means? Well, it means weightiness. It means heaviness. That who God is, he is weighty. He is heavy. And that's a sad description for us today, isn't it? That's an issue that we have entirely forgotten, haven't we? That when we say that God is glorious, we are assigning and attributing to him. He is the greatest of weight. He is the heaviest of heavy. David Wells, in his book, God in the Wasteland, describes our culture and society. Listen to what he says. It is one of the defining marks of our time that God is weightless. I do not mean by this he is ethereal, i.e. light or airy, but rather that he has become unimportant. He rests upon the world so inconsequentially as not to be noticeable. He has lost his saliency for human life. We sing glory, and yet our world notices him not. He is inconsequential, not even noticeable. And what David is saying is, that's utterly foolish. You have a blind heart and a blind eye if you cannot see the power, the majesty, or in fact, the glory, the weight of God. It is the fact that he has created the whole world that the entire world is not just created by him, it is sustained by him. That every breath that you and I take 
It's because you have a creator who stands behind you, enabling and allowing that very thing. He holds the world together by the word of his power. And so David says that he is glorious and we are to worship him in the splendor of his holiness. I find that to be interesting because it really is hard for you and I to describe glory. We have it in context in the scriptures, but really where you see the word glory the most is in conjunction with the word holiness to enable us to understand what does it mean that God is holy, that he's set apart, that he is perfect. Perhaps you have that image of Isaiah 6, the the superlative of God, holy, holy, holy. It's holiness and glory. Holiness is, well, it's what makes God. God is holy. It's what separates him from us. It's what makes him altogether different and distinguishes him as different from us. And glory might be understood. You could say that holiness is revealed and is put on display. David is telling us about the king, and he says it's the holiness of God that people cry glory. The two seem to go together, holiness and glory. You could say holiness is what God is, and glory is what proceeds from him. And so David says, ascribe to the Lord glory that is due his name. Worship the Lord. Layman's terms, what is he saying? God is about to put his holiness on public display. He is going public with who he is and what he is like. And David is trying to come up with words to describe him. It's hard to describe beauty, isn't it? We, we know it when we see it. Some of you might be too old to remember this movie. I understand that that doesn't tend to go well, older people know more movies, but you're probably old enough not to watch this movie. Some of you are young enough and should have watched it, but you didn't watch it. And so I'm probably the only one who knows this reference. It was called The First Kid. What's The First Kid about? The president has a son, and it's somewhat of an unruly son. He likes to take risks. And so he needs, a, well, he needs security. And Sinbad he is the security. Sinbad, he, is a, well, he was a boxer in the movie, that is, and turned security guard. And so the president tasks him and says, I want you to look after my son. And so they're trying to build this relationship, and you can imagine the story of the movie. Kid doesn't want it. Guy wants to quit. Something happens that brings them together. Well, what happens that brings them together? Well, this, this kid, the first son, if you wanted to call him that. He, well, he really likes this girl. He can't talk about her because he doesn't know how to describe her. He, he's too nervous to even talk to her. And so Sinbad, he's a good guy. He said, all right, look, I've got a, I've got a plan. I'm going to put the little earpiece in. You say what I say, and we'll work this thing out. And so you can imagine how this goes, right? He sees her. He's nervous. Sinbad's telling him, it's okay, calm down. He says, just, just say hello. And the kid goes, hello! And he says, yeah, yeah, that's perfect. Girls love it when you make them deaf. It, it, what, what is happening with the kid? He, he's overwhelmed with this one girl. 
He doesn't know how to describe her. He doesn't necessarily know what to do with her or in her presence. And that's what it's like to understand the glory of God. It's overwhelming. It's a beauty that you cannot define, but you know it when you see it. It's overwhelming. It's heavy. It's weighty. It'll buckle your knees. It'll make you nervous. It'll make you excited. It'll make you fearful. And David says, this is the king of glory. Worship him. Secondly, we see it in verses three through nine. This king of glory begins to speak. He is the holy one. And he says he wants you to understand something about this king. And I think if you're following along with David, you and I would probably have to hit the pause button just about now because he's going to say some things that don't fit our mentality of God. When he begins to describe God, it's nothing like you and I would do. And what do I mean by that? Uh, one guy, I appreciated how he talks about this particular portion of the psalm. He, he says, when we think about the voice of God, uh, this is what he says, we have some beautiful mountain scene or farmland with the perfect light and a right ratio of snow. That's the good postcard. How do you know that you and I think that way? Because you've, well, you've gone on to Amazon, the bookstore, and all of your devotionals have these pretty little pictures. The covers, it must be pretty. It must be well packaged. The questions must be highly motivated to how pretty and beautiful God is. And if it doesn't at all affect your feelings, then it can't be the voice of the Lord. And what does David say here? What is he looking at when he describes the voice of God? He's looking out and he sees a storm. He sees a storm that's coming and it had to have been language that people would have understood. It's not just some fancy illustration that he's trying to get across. People had to have understood these kind of storms or they wouldn't know what he's talking about. And so what does he do? He says, the voice of the Lord seven times and he's trying to describe what is it like And it's like this storm. It's not some random collection of charged electrons. That's not at all what he's saying. It's a storm, but it's it's powerful and it's beautiful. It's majestic. It's transformative. And so he says, let me tell you about what this voice of the Lord is like. He seems to be looking out and over the country, and it seems to begin on the sea, perhaps the Mediterranean Sea, depending on where he is. And it's going to come across the land from the north to the south. And he gives you these three scenes of the storm. And in verses 3 to 4, you you see it. It's, It's over the waters. And it's building intensity. It's preparing for landfall. And it's going to hit with a force. And it's full of majesty. And what is it? David says it's the voice of the Lord. That's what it is. It is he who speaks. It is he who commands it. It's he who commissioned it. It's he who controls it. And the waters obey. And David is describing, here is the voice of the Lord over the waters. And you look in five through seven and it's hitting land, perhaps the northernmost part of the promised land. And it unleashes fury Did you see the power that it has? It breaks the cedars. 
He makes Lebanon to skip like a calf, like and Syrian, like a young wild ox. The voice of the Lord flashes forth flames of fire. He uses the word cedar. You you do a little bit of research. These are massive, majestic trees. Some as big as 40 feet around its trunk. They're huge. They were used in they were used in construction during that time. And in fact, they were used in the construction of the temple. They were meant to erect and help support the temple of the Lord. And what do we find? This deeply rooted, strong tree, it snaps in two. Just a toothpick as the voice of the Lord comes and speaks. It's the king of glory, the one who worked, who spoke, and it happens. It's power. Mountains are skipping around. They're leaving. That which, that which you and I would think is stable, that which we might call impressive, David says it's not found there. It's the voice of the Lord. It's what moves it, and it's also what provides security for you and I. And then he talks about the south. It, he uses the geographic term for us, Kadesh. It's the wilderness. It's where the people lingered in the land with Moses. And it shakes the wilderness, and it gives you an image of how powerful the shaking is. The voice of the Lord makes the deer give birth and strips the forest bare. That premature birth takes place because God is in its midst and speaks. It destroys all of what is in its presence. What is David looking at? He's telling you the king of glory, he speaks and he does so in a majestic, in a powerful manner. That which we want our life to be built on, it cannot be built in this world. There is no security outside of God. All will be brought low in comparison of him. And so you and I ask the question, if that's true, how is this a psalm of praise? It certainly sounds like a psalm of judgment. As he speaks, things, they leave. They're destroyed. What he's giving you is a picture that says the earth is worshiping, the people are worshiping. What do they say in verse 9? They're in the temple and they cry, glory. They've gotten a glimpse of God and they're overwhelmed with joy. There's nothing that compares. There's nothing like him because he's the king of glory. And when he speaks, they listen and it's good. Who is the king of glory? It is Yahweh. It is Jesus. That's what you're going to learn here in our final point. The king who saves. The king who saves. They're in the temple. They cry glory. And David finishes with what? The Lord sits enthroned over the flood. The Lord sits enthroned as king forever. I'm sure you've heard it before. The word flood there, it's only used one other place. And it is exactly where you and I are thinking. It is only used in Genesis 6 through 9. It is the 
picture and description of when God sends the flood and judgment. And what is David telling you about this king? He was enthroned over that flood. When all of that took place, my king was enthroned. And that king is still enthroned. He says that wasn't just past. We are in a present tense and a present going on future tense. He will always be enthroned. It's the king of glory. He is the king. And the reason it's beautiful is because you go back and then you read the psalm again. And what you learn is this king of glory, when he comes in the picture or the form of a storm, what is left? God. God is still there. He's not wiping sweat from his brow because he's tired or he's wore out. He is still king and his people have been preserved. They have, well, they have received strength. That's what David says. They've, re- they've received peace. When the world is tossed to and fro from every wind of teaching or cultural trend, not the people of God. They stand secure. It's that picture that Jesus talked about, isn't it? That Sermon on the Mount picture. Don't build your house on the sand. It won't last. You build it on the rock. That is Christ himself. It's that picture, you, perhaps you know, of Elijah in 1 Kings 19. He's, he's on the run. He's running from Ahab and, and Jezebel, and he wants to be faithful. He wants to serve the Lord. He wants to know where God is. And so he goes out, and what takes place? There's a storm. There's a picture of fire and a mountain, and God's not found there. There's this smoke, and yet God's not there. Where does God show up? In the whisper. The powerful voice of the Lord that brought a storm is the same voice that brings peace in a whisper. It's the same voice that you read about in Genesis 1 when he says, let it be, it was. It's the same voice, in fact, that you will learn later on. Jesus will say, Lazarus, come forth. A man who has died comes to life. It's that voice. And yet when that voice is silent, it's the sinless Savior who dies. So at the next sound of the voice of the Lord, you have a risen and conquering king, able and ready to fight for you. It's the voice of the Lord. And it brings peace. If you were with us this morning, that was the assurance of pardon, wasn't it? When we talk about peace, a, a, a wholeness, a harmony, how, do you, how does this king save? He brings wholeness to your life. He brings righteousness to your life. Because when the storm passes and God is there, you understand that the only place for peace is to be found from God. You cannot do it yourself. And so that is what Paul is saying in Romans chapter 5. If you want peace, you must be justified by faith in Christ alone. There is no peace outside of being justified by Christ or through Christ. It's peace that the people of God want from Aaron. 
Do you remember those words? That God tells Aaron, Aaron, I want you to provide a blessing for the people. What's a part of that blessing? That God would give them peace. It's peace that people want. It's a peace that only God can give. And he has done so through the person of his own son. You have a powerful picture of God. It begins with his power. And it shows you how powerful it is because it finishes with peace. The God who creates is the God who calms. The God who creates is the God who sustains, secures, and brings all of his people to glory. It's, it's a, an impressive picture. And David says, this is my king. He is the king of glory. It shows God as a king, not just enthroned as he is, and he's an absent-minded king. It's a, it's a God who intimately gets involved in the details, who rules and reigns with his people. The God who says, peace is not a place, it's a person. And his name is Jesus. That's the question that S.M. Lockridge asks over and over. When he's describing his king, he puts these little moments in there. He says, do you know him? Do you know him? Do you know my king? That's a way to end tonight. Do you know this king? Do you know peace? Because his name is Jesus. Let's pray to that end. Our God and our Father, we, we marvel at the majesty of what your word shows us even this night that there is a sense in which we use these words glory and strength and holy, and yet we are inadequate even in our own descriptions. We're inadequate in our understanding of who you are because there is no means by which we have that can provide to us the full scope of your love. There's no telescope that can demonstrate visibly for us the fullness of who you are. For you are incomprehensible. And yet in great mercy and grace, you have revealed yourself to us that we might know you and in fact that we might worship you. And so this night as we finish this Lord's Day, that that is our prayer that we would have peace, not because we've worked hard, not because we are well-rested, but in fact, because we have met with the living God. We have come to know Christ and Christ alone. And we would have those same words as Paul would give to us. Jesus is our peace. May that be true this night, we ask, in and through Christ Jesus, our Lord. Amen.